there, and welcome to the COVID-19 and Food podcast series from the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Una Bradley, and I'm the Communications Officer for the Institute. During this series, I will be speaking to some of our top researchers about the effects of the latest coronavirus on food systems, food integrity, and our relationship with food. We are recording this series remotely, so please forgive any technical hitches or blips in sound quality. My guest today is Dr. Simon Doherty, Senior Vice President of the British Veterinary Association and a Senior Lecturer at the Institute. Prior to his coming to IGFS, Simon was Animal Sciences and Aquaculture Specialist for the UK's Department for International Trade for three years. With a keen interest in animal welfare and improving industry standards, both locally and internationally, Simon was recently appointed chair of the Food Safety and Sustainability Working Group of the Federation of Veterinarians in Europe. You've 20 years or so experience in farm animal practice, industry and academia. What is the latest evidence regarding the likelihood of livestock contracting COVID-19? Certainly at this stage, uh, we don't have really any substantive evidence that livestock species uh, play any significant role in uh, in COVID-19. Um, there's a lot of studies that have gone on right across the globe looking at um, the likelihood that um, livestock species might have the, the right receptors in order to um, engage with the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus. Um, and that really at this stage, we don't think that livestock are, are playing any significant role either in contracting the virus or in relation to food safety um, to do with animals and animal products. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly, as I say, there, there's no ep epidemiological suggestion that they play um, a significant role in spreading the disease. OK, good news so far anyway, at least. Um, I suppose some some other concerns maybe have been around animal welfare rather than just the food safety. And I know that elsewhere in the world, there have been reports of large scale slaughter of farm animals due to backups in the supply chain. Um, I understand there have been some supply chain issues uh, like that in the US. But has this happened at all, um, you know, closer to home in the in the UK or Ireland? Well, certainly in my uh, British Veterinary Association role, we're um, maintaining very close contact with the four chief veterinary officers around the UK. So there's a separate CVO for Scotland, England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And then CVO England is actually CVO UK at the same time, Christian Middlemas. Okay. Um, we've been in close contact with the CVOs and with Food Standards Agency and with a lot of the food business operators. And we haven't seen any uh, significant supply chain issues like that in, in the UK. There have been a couple of instances in the Republic of Ireland and, and certainly some instances el elsewhere in Europe where the supply chain has been affected 
because of human it's it's because of human infection as uh, as opposed to anything to do with the fact that they're actually abattoirs um and it's it's very much just the case that um you know we need to make sure that we've got all of the protections in place for staff that are working in abattoirs and meat plants um to cut down the spread of the disease in in those um in those premises um and that then allows us to to keep the the food chain moving if you like um, and certainly there have been cases, uh, as you mentioned, in, in the US where because they've had a, a number of um, human outbreaks of, of COVID-19 in very big food premises, um, that that has resulted in animals remaining on farm and creating a welfare problem for those animals on farm. And, and there have been some instances where some of those animals have needed then to have been culled. I suppose in the UK and Ireland, um, there's been still a lot of quite a lot of debate, especially more recently around intensive farming generally, and the sort of um, allegation that factory farms act as incubators for disease, particularly uh, what are called zoonoses, the pathogens that jump from animals to humans. Uh, somewhere between 50 to 70 percent of emerging infectious diseases in humans are said to have their source in animals now. Should we be reviewing modern farming practices? It's a really interesting question, and 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 certainly it's a you know a, a, a comprehensive answer would be a very complex one. Um, <laughs> there's all sorts of different areas that we should be looking at, but actually, disease control uh, in our um, livestock farms in the Western world is uh, you know is, is is some of the best in the world. Um, we've got good disease diagnostics for a lot of the diseases that we're looking at. We've got good mechanisms of surveillance. So that's joining up those results that we're getting from those diagnostic tests to look at patterns of disease across regions and across the country. Um, there is certainly more that we can be doing. Um, and, and as part of the whole outlook now of sustainable livestock agriculture, we're looking at that balance between um, production efficiency or productivity, animal health, animal welfare, and public health, and getting the balance there that that um, as far as insofar as we can. Um, also, then sort of building into that then aspects related to environmental sustainability and, and how we get rid of waste from farms and things like that. But specifically around um, this allegation if you like that that intensive farming is somehow to, to blame um you know zoonotic diseases have been around for a very very long time we've always had um diseases jumping between species and and in many ways human beings are just another human another animal species um and it makes sense that a lot of these pathogens will continue to to jump around um so Certainly what we then need to look at is how we as a human population interact with animals, making sure that we're handling food products safely, uh, making sure that we're cooking meat and dairy products properly, um, storing them properly. Those are the kinds of things that are going to help to minimise the risk of human infection of, of any disease or any pathogen, if you like, um, from animals. But at farm level, certainly we're doing an awful lot now to improve um, what we call biosecurity and biocontainment. So biocontainment is keeping infection on farm where it's present. 
um, and stopping it spreading to other farm premises so that we can get it under control. Um, and biosecurity, I suppose, is a broader concept. Um, it's not just a bucket of disinfectant at the farm gate, but it goes much beyond that in terms of the boundaries around the farm, how waste is managed, um, lorries and contractors coming on and off the farm, um, farm staff leaving, um, clothing at work um, and wearing different clothing at home and, 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 and so on and so forth. So the whole piece around uh, biosecurity certainly is, is an area that we continue to improve on. Mm, interesting, because obviously the latest stories about, about the latest outbreak of COVID-19 in China uh, seem to be suggesting a link with um, possibly, you know, bad hygiene practice or, uh, you know, something slipping up in the preparation of food. Um, on a wide scale, um, on, on a big scale, which is obviously, you know, al always a concern to hear that. But you'd been very vocal. And as you were talking there, it was reminding me, uh, you, you talk a lot about the One Health approach to COVID-19 and to other things. Um, for those who aren't familiar with that term, what exactly does it mean? It's really, it's about so I currently chair the UK One Health Coordination Group and I've, I've been doing quite a lot of work around One Health over the last number of years. One Health, the, so the, the One Health Commission is a, is a you know, a, a European group which is becoming more and more global and they define One Health as the, collaborator, the collaborative effort between uh, multiple professionals working together um, with related disciplines and institutions um, working locally, nationally and globally towards optimal health and well-being for people, domestic animals, wildlife, plants and the environment. So just to kind of break that down a bit, what, what's that actually mean? Well, it's about, certainly it's about collaboration and communication between vets, farmers, food business operators, the medical profession and those who are, who are involved in, in working with, with the environment as well. So it's human well-being, it's animal well-being um, and it's environmental well-being and it's working at all those different levels. It's working here in Northern Ireland, it's working at UK level, it's working at European level, it's working at a global level and it's very much about health and welfare. We, we, we tend to talk, although we talk about one health, we really, what we actually mean is one well-being because health and welfare are almost inextricably linked when we're talking about people, when we're talking about animals, when we're talking about the environment. The sort of piece, the balance between health and welfare, um, we, we, we tend now to talk quite a lot about well-being. So that, that, that's kind of what One Health um, really embraces. And where does the wildlife trade fit into that One Health picture, for example? Um, you know, we're being told now that SARS, Ebola and now COVID are all believed to have passed from wild animals to humans. Um, and you'll be aware of a campaign for the wildlife trade to be banned worldwide. Do you think that would be the right move? I think the important thing is it's like any sort of process. You, you, you want to look at where the critical control points are um, and, and, and try to understand what you can do to control those. So if you, if you take the, the instance, and we're, we're not absolutely completely and 100% sure of the, the source of the virus in this particular instance. We, we know that it has probably come from bats to people somehow 
Okay, um, and certainly the wet markets in in uh, in the Far East have have certainly been um, a source of concern around that in relation to um, you know that what we would call a spillover from a wildlife species to to humans. Um, so looking at that, if you like, as one critical control point, how can you stop that spillover? Um, and certainly reducing the likelihood of having wildlife species in a market for a start yeah. um, and a, as a wet market where live animals are kept until the point of slaughter and then they're um, slaughtered in the in the market and hygiene maybe isn't as good as it could be the risk associated with all of those um, sort of points within those markets um, makes that a, a real sort of critical control point for a virus like COVID. But sort of more broadly, I suppose what we'll be what we're looking at is, I mean, the wildlife trade, obviously there's legitimate wildlife trade in terms of conservation, movement of animals between zoo collections and, and, and um, you know, uh, for for all sorts of different reasons, um, there there can be movement of of wildlife species around the world. Um, I think really what we're focusing on, and certainly what China are focusing on at the minute, um, is uh, where some of these wildlife species are particularly high risk for um, for human pathogens coming in contact with the general public um, as part of the the food chain, um, and that's that's certainly where um, for UK government um, they will have critical control points at Heathrow and at the docks and and um, and so on and so forth and, and and certainly at the European frontiers um you know will be um, there, there are border inspection posts which will be looking out for illegally imported meat or dairy products coming in from from overseas again to help reduce that risk um associated with some of these diseases potentially coming into the UK and if, and then affecting the um, both the livestock population and the human population within the UK. So it's very much about control and um, and certainly that's what that's absolutely what we need to, to be able to get a grip of. And 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 presumably now post Brexit, you know, some of those controls will need to be written into new trade deals as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, I, 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 certainly at this point in time, um, Again, wearing my, wearing my BVA hat, we're, we're spending a lot of time um, talking with government at the minute. I had a meeting with one of the Department for International Trade Ministers last week, um, and we were talking very much about the veterinary role um, uh, of, in relation to products of animal origin, animals and products of animal origin um, in relation to trade deals. Um, and it's about the health and the welfare of the animals at source. Um, it's about the safety of the animals that are coming in through our ports. It's how they're um, documented, the types of certification that's required, who's competent to carry out that certification. Um, and, and again, it's, a, you know, it's, it's another way of, of trying to maintain some level of control um, on, those, uh, on those imports and, and exports. Yeah. Lots, lots of um, challenging, challenging times ahead, no doubt. Yep. Um, but what about pets, Simon? Uh, we've all read, you know, reports of cats and dogs and, and some other animals in various parts of the world um, testing positive for COVID. Um, although the numbers do appear to be small at this stage, uh, does it represent, you know, a serious concern going forward? Yeah, it, again, another it's another really interesting one. Anyway, you know, certainly the, the media have have enjoyed, uh, you know, jumping onto the you know the dogs in Hong Kong and the, the cats in Belgium and the tiger in the Bronx. 
Um, mm-hmm. And and more recently, we've had we've had some more reports then, uh, you know, around mink um, yes. uh, farms in the Netherlands. Um, look, the, the the bottom line again, it's it's a bit like livestock. We don't this this has become quite a humanized virus. We we don't think that companion animals necessarily play a significant role in spreading the disease. Um, I think it's kind of one of those things with with some of the the very sensitive tools that we have now within our diagnostic toolbox. We've got new technologies like whole genome sequencing and and all of the sort of omic technologies um, that will allow us um, to detect tiny, tiny fragments of genetic material. I mean, it makes sense in some ways that if you've got an infected person living in a house with, you know, with an infected with a cat, you know, the likelihood is that the virus that is being spread into the local environment is going to be found on the cat. Okay, so if you okay. go looking on, if you go looking on the cat, you're probably going to find virus. Does that mean the cat's infected, or does it mean that the cat has become in contact with the person who is, you know, excreting virus around the place? And this is this is one of the things that you know we we very much kind of have to put in context. Um, what we would be looking for to say that the cat or dog had become infected would be to say that they were maybe ill in some mm-hmm. way related to the virus um, and that they could replicate the virus and possibly excrete the virus in, in reasonable amounts. Then that becomes 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 more of, more of an issue. But again, I think at this stage in the disease, given, um, you know, at this stage in the pandemic, given given the amount of spread that there has been globally, if we had suspected that companion animals were going to be a very significant part of the spread um, of the disease, I think we would probably understand an awful lot more about it now. Um, okay. As I say, there's a difference just between looking for the virus and actually proving that, you know, the cat or dog is really playing a significant part um in the spread of the disease yeah so just for example if if somebody uh contracted covid19 um in the future uh, in this part of the world in northern ireland and they had a cat or a dog who normally would be in the house what would your advice be to them i think the advice would be i you know again we we because we we are we're continuing to learn about how the disease is affecting people um we're also then continuing to learn in much, much, much smaller numbers how the disease, you know, how the virus is is affecting um, uh, animals that it comes in contact with. I think an, uh, probably a sensible approach at this stage would be in the same way that the, the rest of the family go into lockdown. Um, you know, the cat or dog would also be in lockdown, and as far as possible, the cat or dog that is normally inside should probably be kept inside. I think the the notion that you know we know we know that there are plenty of cats who um, have a breakfast in four or five different houses in the street. Um, <laughs> yes, and, I have one of those. Yeah, and and there is, a, I suppose, a concern that well, if if the cat leaves, you know, a house with an infected person in it, could the cat be what's called a fomite? Could the cat? physically spread the the uh, the virus to the next house if the people in the next house struck the cat and you know uh, whatever look i think again it comes down to hygiene if you mm-hmm. fed the cat or dog wash your hands um you know wash your hands again wash your hands again um the likelihood then of the cat um taking the virus next door 
um, and infecting those people, provided they're also washing their hands when they're touching the cat, um, the likelihood is very, very low. If, if the cat or dog can be kept inside, I think our advice would probably be to do so. If you've got a sort of semi-feral cat that's used to being out and about all the time, you could actually cause more of a welfare upset to, to that cat by forcing it to stay indoors for three or four weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, and under, under those circumstances, I think the balance would say, look, you're you're probably okay to, to let it out. You know, the risks are, yes. are probably very, very low. Good advice there. Well, Simon, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. And I definitely feel like I know more about the relationships between animal, human and environmental well-being now than I did before this conversation. And I hope it's the same for our audience. You can always listen to this podcast again and all the other podcasts in the Food and COVID-19 series on our website which is www.qub.ac.uk forward slash IGFS. And please remember to follow us on Twitter also at QUBIGFS. Until the next time, goodbye.